Ecclesiastes, starting uh, we're in chapter three, starting in verse fourteen. You can follow along in a Bible, or the passage is printed for you in the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw unto the Son that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls, two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word that speaks to us with honesty about ourselves, about our world, and about who you are. Pray that you would give us humble, open, teachable hearts before your word that you would apply these words into each one of our lives and that you would teach us repentance and faith, that we would take hold of Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And we pray this in his name. Amen. If you were with us last week, we talked about the topic of providence. If you don't know the word providence, a theological term that means God's control and ordering of everything that happens in the world. Every detail of our lives has been ordered by God. And, you know, it's fitting that uh, the very next week, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes has probably anticipated the most natural question that comes from a sermon about providence, is if God is in control of everything and orders everything, and God is good, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Maybe some of you had that question last week. And, you know, it's interesting, it struck me while I was preparing this uh, sermon that 
probably the, the two biggest objections that people have to believing in the Bible or believing that there is a God is that on the one hand, they look at the world and they say, you know, there's so much evil in the world. There's so much suffering, so much oppression. How could there be a good God? Why doesn't God come as a judge and kind of stop all the evil and suffering and make the world right and make it peaceful? Why isn't God a judge? And on the other hand, people say, you know, the thing I really don't like about the Bible is this always talking about God being a judge. And there's this final judgment and he's going to come. We're all going to stand before him. And it's kind of an odd thing that the two objections that people have is on the one hand, it's that God's not a judge, and on the other hand, that he is a judge. And it's kind of weird that those are the two problems. Why is that? Well, it's because, deep down, we are all people of justice. Justice matters deeply to us. Actually, if you, for those of you who are parents, and you, you have a child, almost the first words out of a child's mouth are words about justice. You know, someone takes their toy and that's not fair, ah, you know, fall on the ground crying, outrage, because someone has mistreated them. And you're like, what? where is this coming from? The little child has this awareness that there is this moral order that we are all obligated to live under, that you are supposed to treat me fairly, and I'm supposed to treat you fairly. They just know that. We all know that. That there is some moral law that we live under. And when we think that we should be treated fairly and that others should be treated fairly, then we ask, why doesn't God act like a judge and stop all the unfairness? Why doesn't he stop it? But you know, at the same time, as we say, why doesn't God stop all the unfairness? We also know that each one of us are the ones who take toys from people. Uh, We know that we don't always play fair. And so if we call down God as a judge, we know that we're part of the problem. And so we're not sure that we actually, we're not sure we want God to come as a judge, right? It's kind of a dilemma. On the one hand, I want God to stop all the evil and injustice, but I'm not sure that I want him to deal with me that way. And so there's a dilemma. Do we want God to be a judge or not? Well, uh, my hope as we look at this passage today is that if you have read the Bible, and felt like, you know, I, I wish there wasn't all those passages about God's wrath and God's anger. My hope is that today we look at this passage together and we come to a place that God's judgment would be something that we would praise him for, we'd celebrate, we, we would be thankful, we'd say, I, I wouldn't want God to be any other way. And so to do that, we're going to do it, talk about God's justice this morning under these three headings. The first, God's justice is foreign to us. Okay, it's not something we understand. It's not something we've experienced before. That's why it's hard for us to embrace. So first, God's justice is foreign to us. Second, God's justice is ultimately in final judgment. And third, God's justice is satisfied only in Jesus. Okay, three points this morning. This is the first. God's justice is foreign to us. The reason that we don't celebrate God being a judge is because uh, true justice is something we've never really seen before. And I'll tell you a couple reasons that. For the, re- the first reason we haven't seen that is because human judges are so sinful. And you see that. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness... Even there was wickedness. 
Now, the reason we don't like thinking about, you know, the thought of wrath, God being wrathful, is because the only time that we've experienced people in authority who are supposed to, you know, execute justice, who were given the power to have wrath over evil, um, when we experience that, it's always been ugly for us. You know, so for example, you, you know, in a home, where is the place of justice, the place of righteousness with the parents, Right? And so we've experienced wrath with our father who just kind of was in a bad mood and he'd go into a tear and a rage and, and it was like, you know, disproportionate to whatever the crime was. He'd get over angry and was just say, you know, wrath was just, oh, it just made my house so unpleasant. And to think that God is going to have wrath like that, it's just, I just can't, I just can't tolerate that. It's because in the place of righteousness, the place that was supposed to be the place of, of justice and goodness, we've experienced this ugly selfishness. It's also, you know, it's true in churches. Churches have a place of righteousness, you know, with, with pastors and elders. And some of us, you know, have been in churches where pastors are just always angry and beating people over the head and controlling. And we just say, this was supposed to be a place of safety for me. Where I, and, and there was such hypocrisy there. And so to think that God is going to be just and wrathful and have this kind of authority, I don't want to even think of that. And of course it's true, you know, in society. You know, we have, we experience that in our culture where we think of judges who are kind of overstepping their authority, or in, you know, in, in other societies where there's real um, deep corruption, where judges are bribed, and, uh, and they, they just look out for themselves, and they don't uh, defend the weak, and we only see that justice is self-serving. And so the places that are meant to be the places of safety and fairness are actually places of evil. And so justice is an idea that's foreign to us. And so it's hard for us to conceptualize a wrathful God that we want to celebrate and praise. We, don't, we can't think of that. But, you know, it's an important thing to realize is that God's wrath is actually an aspect of his love. You know, some of you might, you know, when you read the Bible, you say, you know, one minute it seems like God's angry, and the other minute he's loving, and maybe there's these two faces to who God is. But that's, God isn't that way. The Bible's clear that God is one. Every aspect, every characteristic of who he is is really an aspect of his love. And so God's wrath is always about, it's about defending the weak. It's about defending his creation. It's about defending innocence. It's about defending, you know, his honor and his kingdom. And it's always an act of his burning love. And for that reason, one of the defining marks throughout the Bible of God's anger is that it's patient. God's anger is patient. You see this in this verse here, verse 17. Look what it says. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God's judgment, God's anger, comes at the right time. And this is one of the main teachings of the Bible. You know, if you ask the question, why does God let all this evil and oppression happen in the world and people mistreat each other? Why does he let it go on? And the Bible gives an answer to that. The Bible says, because God has given an open offer to all people, even the most violent, even the worst people in, in the world, and it said, you have an open offer of pardon to come and be forgiven and be a part of my kingdom and to be transformed by my love. And he's waiting patiently because when his wrath comes, it will be severe. And so he's giving this time where he's just waiting for people, more and more opportunities for people to turn away from their sin, turn away from their violence, and turn towards him. And, uh, and so, um, we're used to wrath being sudden 
unpredictable, unstable, unfair. But the Bible's favorite description of God is that he is slow to anger. Actually, you read the Old Testament. And God's, you know, dealing with Israel. Israel is a disobedient people. And it takes God centuries for his judgment to fall on them. I mean, he's just waiting and waiting. I mean, it's not just years. It's not just decades. Centuries. And until his discipline kind of comes, because he is slow to anger. So first, justice is born to us because human judges are sinful. So we just haven't seen, you know, righteousness in the places of justice. But the other thing we see in this passage is also justice is born to us because human societies are so oppressive. And you see that, that's what it says in chapter 4, verse 1 there. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. It says there's there's so much injustice in the world. And, And because the world is so broken, it's hard for us to imagine what things being put right, a judge who could really put things right would be like. And I'll tell you something about the oppression in the world, about one of the things that's most tragic about it is that when someone is a victim of oppression, someone, you know, abuses them, or there's, you know, some violence done to them, the most tragic aspect of that is so often the victims themselves then become abusers and become the violent. And, um, you know, this is, this is true in, in parts of the world, you know, we see this even now in the Middle East, where there will be this tyrant, this, you know, who's this kind of dictator who's oppressing all these people, and there will be this a rebellion, this uprising to overthrow this leader. And the uprising, the rebellion, finally gets into power, and then what happens? Once they're in power, they're even more oppressive, and they're more violent than the leader that they, that they took over. And there's just this cycle that continues over and over again. And um, I want to read to you, Mirslav Wolf is a... Uh, theologian who, he, he's a Croatian, and he lived through many of the atrocities in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, in, the, ninth, in the, uh, uh, the war in Yugoslavia in the 90s, and in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he, he gives this account of, of a, a Muslim woman in, uh, who uh, was mistreated uh, by the Serbians, and this is, what, this is what she says, I'm a Muslim, And I'm 35 years old. To my second son, who was just born, I gave the name Jihad. So he would not forget the testament of his mother, revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. Be it so. The Serbs taught me to hate. For the last two months, there was nothing in me. No pain, no bitterness, only hatred. I taught these children to love. I did. I'm a teacher of literature. I was born in Elias, and I almost died there. My student, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated in my mouth. As the bearded hooligans standing around laughed, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. I do not know whether I first heard the cry or felt the blow. My former colleague, a teacher of physics, was yelling like mad, Ustasha, Ustasha, and kept hitting me wherever he could. I have become insensitive to pain, but my soul, it hurts. 
I taught them to love, and all the while they were making preparations to destroy everything that is not of the Orthodox faith. Jihad, war. This is the only way. So here's a woman, she's a teacher, who's loving these children, and their parents or her neighbors just come, and she's, you know, it's graphic, urinated in her mouth, beaten, almost died. Deep crimes are done to her. And now she is going to train her son to do great crimes to others. This is the world we live in. And let me just tell you that if you think that we should believe in a God who's like a big teddy bear and just never has any bad feelings about anyone, who never gets angry, you are kidding yourself. That is not the world we are living in. And the Bible is far more honest, far more righteous, far more beautiful then any visions of God is like a Santa Claus who just wants to give us all warm, fuzzy feelings. That, that our world, we demand far more justice from God. A real righteous God cannot interact with our world that way. And you know, um, many of the Holocaust survivors um, said that the most important thing that we can do to respond to the Holocaust is to not forget. You have to name the crimes. You have to say what they were. You have to, there has to be justice. And that's exactly what final, final judgment is, is when God comes in final judgment, he is going to name publicly, these are all the crimes that have been done to the innocent. And they will be accounted for. And I'll just t- say, for some of you who have suffered abuse in your life, you need to know that what happened to you is wrong. It needs to be named. You need to know that it makes God angry what happened to you. And for some of you, you've had things happen and you didn't even realize that what happened you thought was normal. And then you told someone and they reacted. They said, that happened to you? God hates that. God is against that. And that could be a, a turning point in the healing in your life is to know that God is a judge who stands against it. You know, for a child to be taken advantage of, we should be furious. For tyrants who steal money and food from aid agencies who are giving to the poor... It should make us angry, and if it makes us angry, any God who is worth his salt, it should make him angry too. Of course God should be angry. We can't expect anything less. But the evil of this world demands vengeance, and we cannot be the ones trusted to inflict the vengeance. If we try to give the vengeance, you know, then we'll be like this woman. We're going we're gonna, to... It's not going to be a a, a just vengeance. It's not going to be justice. It's going to be perpetuating the violence. And so God himself must be the judge. So let's raise the question, when are we going to see God's justice, his setting things right? This beautiful, righteous, patient, burning wrath. Well, this is one of the most important doctrines of things to know about having a Christian view of the world is this is our second point is that God's justice is ultimately in final judgment okay and you, you can see this here verse 17 I said in my heart God will judge so there is this future judgment coming God will judge the righteous and the wicked which says that one of the most important pieces of information, if you're a human living in this world, the most, one of the most important pieces of information that you have to have is that each one of us will one day stand before God and give an account for everything, every deed that we have done in the body of our lives. We will all stand before God. 
And the fact that God is going to judge us, he's going to evaluate our lives, he's going to tell our life story and, and consider it, is one of the things that says that your life has meaning. It means that this world is, you know, you, think, you might think we're just all a bunch of ants that are, you know, seven billion ants that are scattered all over the globe just scurrying around. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that each one of us is an image bearer of God, that we were meant to reflect to the world the love of what God is like. And God will te- take each one. I mean, think about how much time that's going to take. All this billions of people, God's going to look at each individual life and consider each individual life. It means that each life matters deeply to him. And his face will turn upon us as individuals. And it is shocking that many hundreds of millions of people go through their whole lives never coming to terms with that reality. Hundreds of millions of people are never even have the thought, I'm going to stand before God at the end of my life, in the end of history. Now, because, of course, it's very convenient to not believe in a final judgment. You know, that's probably the average person in Bellingham would say, you know, I'm I just don't believe in final judgment. I don't have to worry about it, right? And, you know, of course, just because you don't believe in something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, reality doesn't work that way. But let me just tell you one reason why we can't just say, I don't believe in final judgment. And it's because final judgment is the only grounds that we have for human morality. If you believe that there's a right way to treat people, that you should treat people with love, for example, if you think that's a, that's a moral truth that all people are supposed to live under, where did that come from? Where did that law come from? And I'll tell you, it did not come from nature. And uh, Ecclesiastes tells us what we can learn by just looking at nature. You want to look at nature. This is what it says, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. Now we know, because the Bible tells us that the spirit of man, uh, that man and beast are different, but, but just by looking at nature you wouldn't know that. We're all just a bunch of creatures walking around. We're all going to die. And um, we are all just beasts. And nature cannot give you the command to love one another. Nature cannot give you the command to love one another. Now, someone might say, I think I can see in nature love. You know, the animals, they herd together. They kind of help one another out. They have this kind of cooperative spirit. And, you know, I think... You know, it's essentially what love is. There's kind of a social thing. And I could see how we've evolved an instinct towards cooperation. You know, you'll survive better if you work together than if you're on your own. Maybe love did come from nature. Well, let me give you two problems with that. First problem is that the animal world has nothing like what we call love for neighbor. You don't see loving your neighbor in the animal world. I'm sorry, they just, they don't do that. You know, you might have a pack of wolves, for example, that, you know, they go around and they hunt their food together, help one another out. But, you know, if one of the wolves breaks his leg and he can't go on with the pack, what does the pack say? You say, hey, come on, Fred over here has broke his leg. Let's, let's help him nurse his leg back to, you know, and then we'll get him some food and we'll bring it to him. And we'll spend months, you know, whatever we need to get him back in shape so he can be, stay a part of the group. No, you move on. The group is there to help me 
And if, the group, if you're slowing down the group, I'm sorry. It's time to go. That, when we talk about love for neighbor, you know, we have hospitals. You know, bringing in the poor, hospitality, bringing in the outsider, the weakest that are cared for, the love that you see in Jesus, you don't see that in nature. The second thing, though, is that assuming that humans have evolved an instinct for cooperation, let's just assume that we've evolved an instinct to work together. We've also evolved then some other instincts, right? Lust, greed, competitive spirit. And so now I have all these instincts. And why am I choosing the love one? Why don't I choose some of the other instincts? If, if just because something evolved means I should obey it, then all these instincts I should be following. So what that means is I need another law that tells me that the instinct to love should be followed and the instinct to greed should be resisted. What is that law? The law is still there. You can only have a sense of morality in humanity if you believe in a personal law giver who has given us a law that we are all accountable to, who stands over humanity and there is no other coherent explanation for believing in morality except final judgment. And by the way, you know, some of you might think, you know, if I believe in final judgment and that becomes a real core thing, aren't people who believe in final judgment always like self-righteous and coming down on people and just always talking about fire and brimstone? Well, it's possible. Yes. Okay, I'll give you that. There are people like that. Okay? Another option, though, is to say I do believe in final judgment, which means I believe there's a day where God is going to set all things right. And God gets angry at oppression. God gets angry at at violence and abuse. I'm going to get angry at the things that God gets angry at. And I'm going to be an agent in his kingdom working in this world against all those things because I believe that God is a judge and he doesn't just say, hey, the world goes on as it is and, you know, whatever happens, yin and yang, you know, who's to say what's wrong? No, I'm going to stand for the things that God believes in. And so it's actually final judgment that, that gives us a vision for the kingdom of God and what the world can be. And so this leads us to a question. How can I celebrate God's judgment that he's going to one day come and put all things to right while not living in fear of it? How can I celebrate the vision of justice without living in fear of it? And this is our, this is our third point, is that God's justice is satisfied only in Jesus. And so, as I mentioned, you know, there's going to be this accounting at the end of history where we'll all stand before God and we'll be judged according to God's law. And God's law is very simple. There's just two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this law will be satisfied the law will be satisfied. Now, what does that mean for a law to be satisfied? Well, you think of the law to obey the speed limit. Okay? How is that law satisfied? Well, there's two ways to satisfy it. On the one hand, you can drive the speed limit, and you've satisfied the law. Obey the law. Or, if you speed, there is a penalty. There's a ticket that you get. You can pay the penalty, and then the law is satisfied. There are two ways of satisfying the law. How is the law going to be satisfied for us when we stand before God? Well, the Bible tells us that all, and and, and we just think for a moment, 
How many of us have loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and loved our neighbors ourselves? Option one is not an option for us. We did not, we did not satisfy the law by obeying it. So we need option two, the penalty to be paid. And this is how Jesus satisfies the law for us. First, in his life and in his death, Jesus did option one. He is the only person who has ever loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind and loved his neighbor as himself. And he did it on our behalf. But then he also came and paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross so that God's law is satisfied for us in him. And so to be a Christian is to be someone who's received that gift. I am one who deserved wrath. I am a part of the problem in the world. And God has given me grace in Jesus. And that grace must be embraced and accepted. But, you know, there's another way that the law is satisfied in Jesus because the Bible also tells us that when the judge comes at the end of history, it's going to be Jesus who is the judge. And, you know, it's remarkable. If you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about himself that way. You know, if you think, you know, I don't think Jesus is a God, but, you know, I think he's a great guy. You should read some of the things he says. He says things like, when I come at the end of history with all my angels and in my glory and all the nations are going to stand before me and give an account, I'm going to judge the nations, you should think, you know, this, he's either, he is that, or this guy is off his rocker, okay, that he's going to judge all the nations. But no one thinks he's off his rocker. And the big question, you know, when we think about who can be trusted to bring vengeance, Right? We saw the Muslim woman who was mistreated and she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it up. I'm going to train my children in jihad, in war. War is on. We realize that none of us can be trusted with that judgment, with that vengeance. But Jesus is the almighty king, the God over all who humbled himself and he became a servant. And he himself had the wrath of God fall upon him and he let himself be judged and so the judge who's coming at the end of the world is the crucified God who has himself come under that judgment. And so we know he is good. We know he's righteous. We know he defends the weak. We know he's just. And so we trust him with that judgment. The gospel bids each one of us to let ourselves be judged now. Do not wait for that judgment. Let God judge you now and see, I have not fulfilled the law to love the Lord my God and to love my neighbor as myself. And embrace the grace that is in Jesus. For if you do not let yourself be judged now, you will be judged at the last day and then there will be no chance for pardon. I tell you these sobering words in love speak honestly with you. Embrace the grace that is in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that we have the hope of your justice, that you will come one day and set all things right in your creation. We thank you that we can also anticipate that day with joy because Jesus has paid the penalty for us.
so that we may have a share in that new world and that we would be ultimately transformed by your love. May this church be a place of justice and goodness and truth where the weak are brought in, a place of safety, a place of fairness, that we might reflect your character to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.